This game is not over. This battle is not over. So let's hear it one more time. Together. Clear eyes, full hearts. Let's go! Riddle me this and tell me if I'm wrong. What happens when stocks end the first half strong? Do the gains fade like the sun going down? Do they revert to the mean? Do they stop going long like a homer in the ninth? One of those walk-off gems like the series finale of the show they call Friends. Or do they regroup, reset, reconsolidate, retest, find support? Do we sector rotate? History tells us that trends can be our friends. But what about the Fed? It wants inflation to end. It's not done raising rates. There's more hikes in store. Is that going to drive earnings through the floor? Does that mean a recession's heading our way? We've been waiting all year for that part of the play. So what do we do now? This is getting kind of confusing. Last week, our portfolios took a bruising. Is this the beginning of the end or just an intermission? Should we take our profits or prepare for more addition? It's the question that's begging for more introspection. Higher highs ahead or is this the start of a correction? We got to get right, hold tight, review and reassess what's ahead on the tracks for the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. We are back from a little summer break. Did anything break? Not quite, but the first half scorcher cooled a little bit in last week's shortened trading sessions as private sector job gains and wages showed continued signs of strength, reigniting concerns that the Federal Reserve will resume its rate hiking campaign at its next meeting in about 16 days. Traders are putting a 93% probability on another quarter point raise at that meeting, according to the CME's FedWatch tool, and that has put the beat back into the drums around a potential recession for the second half of the year. Mind you, a lot of people thought that would have already happened by now, but the U.S. economy is still flexing pockets of strength in some areas, like the labor market. U.S. employers added 209,000 jobs in June, a little lower than expected, and the smallest increase since the end of 2020. Wage gains, however, still have some stamina, rising 0.4% last month and 4.4% year over year. And while the job gains slowed according to the Labor Department's non-farm payrolls report, private sector hiring remains robust, climbing by nearly 500,000 jobs just last month. The job market remains strong. 1.7 million jobs have been created in 2023 so far on the heels of 4.8 million jobs last year, and the prime age employment rate hit 80.9% in June its highest level since 2001. The great resignation we've been hearing about feels like it kind of jumped the shark. Meanwhile, the big money has been moving in mysterious ways. Institutional investors are barbelling the big mega cap tech and consumer discretionary stocks on the one side with high yield corporate bonds on the other and a little crypto in between. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, Let's take a look at the scorecard a little past the midpoint of the year, and the leader in terms of total returns so far this year is by far crypto assets at nearly 83%. A lot of that may have something to do with the excitement over BlackRock and Fidelity both filing to issue Bitcoin-backed ETFs. Do you think the two biggest asset managers in the Western world would be doing that if they didn't think those would be approved by the SEC eventually? Watch this space. U.S. stocks have returned close to 13% so far this year, much of that driven by the big seven mega caps led by Apple, Meta, and NVIDIA, and more on that in a minute. And then there's gold, delivering a near 5% return so far this year, providing that shiny shelter from inflation storms. High-yield bonds were back in style, returning more than 4.5%, followed by investment-grade bonds with a 2.4% return. The laggards? The dollar, which is slightly negative for the year, followed by government bonds and commodities with oil sliding 10.5%. 
sector to sector inside the stock market. It's been all about chip stocks and AI and consumer discretionary stocks because investors feel like we're going to keep spending no matter what. But don't sleep on industrials, especially if so many people are convinced that a recession is coming eventually. If it is, then why is the XLI ETF, the Industrial Sector Spider Fund, which holds companies like Caterpillar, Raytheon, and UPS, nearing an all-time high? Remember Dow Theory, for a real bull market to gather momentum, you need to see industrials and transports rallying at the same time. P.S. That's been happening lately. Number two. Since we are keeping score, which stocks besides Apple, NVIDIA, and Meta were the strongest performers in the first half? How about cruise stocks resurfacing after those dark COVID days? Carnival Cruise Lines and Royal Caribbean are both up more than 100% so far this year. I miss the 1980s sometimes. Shares of Tesla are up 112% as Elon prepares for his UFC throwdown against Mark Zuckerberg, whose meta shares are up 138%. Chip stocks ruled the roost, with Nvidia popping 190% in the first half given its artificial intelligence ambitions, but AMD, Broadcom, On Semiconductor, and LAM Research all rose more than 50% or more. On the other side of the ledger, first half losses were led by Advanced Auto Parts, one of 2022's lonely winners with losses of 53%. That was followed by regional bank stocks, which were caught in the crossfire of some of the biggest bank failures in history. Big Pharma also led the losses given COVID's secession, with Pfizer and Moderna both dropping around 30% in the first half of the year. And what about that global rotation we experienced in the first half? Yes, the US stock market did some flexing, but it was outlifted by 13 other countries from a stock market perspective. The first half gains were led by Nigeria, gaining 50%, followed by Greece at 40%, Argentina at 35% despite ridiculous inflation, and Ireland with a 27% return. Will those trends continue into the second half of the year? Hard to know given geopolitical uncertainty, but what we do know is that you have to have a global passport if you're looking for diversified gains these days. And number three, let's talk a little bit more about first half, second half correlation. According to the smart folks at the Carson Group, Correlation analysis comparing the first and second halves of years prior to 2023 for the S&P 500 suggests the trend should remain our friend somewhat. Of the 10 highest correlated first halves since the year 1950, the S&P 500 generated average and median gains of around 12% in the second half. Nine out of 10 of those years showed positive returns. Not all of those years had the same economic and market forces at play, however, high interest rates and relatively high inflation. But 1995 does. 95 was a pre-election year, just like 2023, and the Greenspan-led Fed at the time was raising interest rates through the first part of the year, but then paused in the second half of the year, avoiding a recession. The economy had a so-called soft landing, and the S&P 500 climbed 13% in the second half of the year. Now, betting on correlation is not a sound strategy in and of itself, but long-term investors like us need to look at historical trends because as Mark Twain may or may not have said, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Let's get set up for a big week ahead, the first full week of trading for the second half of the year, and it is jam-packed. Second quarter earnings report cards are going to start coming in, led by the big banks, including JP Morgan Chase, BlackRock, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup, among others. We're going to be listening very carefully to what they have to say about loan growth, consumer and business delinquencies and defaults, and their net interest income, given the higher for longer theme around interest rates. We haven't had another bank failure since First Republic, but we do know that loan growth has slowed and the consumer may be tiring, especially with the stay on student loans ending coming this September. We'll also hear from Delta Airlines, United Health Group, and 
and PepsiCo, among other widely held companies. Overall, analysts expect companies in the S&P 500 to report a third consecutive decline in quarterly earnings. Second quarter profits are projected to have dropped 7.2% from the second quarter of 2022, according to the good people at Factset. That would be the steepest slide in quarterly profits since the second quarter of 2020, when COVID kneecapped corporate profits resulting in a 32% profit decline. Have investors priced in these declines, or are we in for a rude awakening? On the economic front, we're going to get a fresh read on consumer and producer prices with the release of the Consumer Price Index on Wednesday and the Producer Price Index on Thursday. We're likely to see a three-handle on consumer prices for the first time in several years. Economists are expecting the CPI to clock in at 3.6% year-over-year, down from that 4% annual rate we reached back in May. That would be the slowest annual pace of inflation since March of 2021, and there's even a small chance that consumer prices could drop below 3% on an annual basis. If that happens, the next Fed hike may be punted or scratched altogether. And on Friday, we'll get a check on consumers' feelings as the University of Michigan will release the preliminary reading of the Consumer Sentiment Index for July. If you traveled over the July 4th holidays like I did, you'd say consumers are still feeling pretty flush, or at least they're pretending to feel that way. The way we invest, the way we save, the way we spend, the way we think about money is deeply tied to our own inner psychology, the way we were raised and our experiences around money in our lifetimes. Getting a better understanding of our money history and the emotions and experiences that are wrapped up in that is key to our ability to build wealth and achieve our financial goals. It sounds simple. It's not simple. And the best financial planners and advisors are some of our best guides on that journey of discovery. No one knows that better than Dr. Preston Cherry. Dr. Cherry is the founder and president of Concurrent Financial Planning. He also serves as an assistant professor of finance in the Austin E. Coffrin School of Business at the University of Wisconsin and the director of the Charles Schwab Foundation Center for Financial Wellness at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. He holds a PhD in financial planning and he is the past president of the Financial Therapy Association. And he is our special guest on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Preston. So good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Caleb. Appreciate it. Let's talk about financial therapy. I'm the son of a psychotherapist. I know what psychotherapy is, and I have a lot of experience with that, but a lot of people don't know that financial therapy exists. What is it? So financial therapy, right? It Think, feel, behave. It's an investigation of these emotions. It is a paradigm. All right. And the way we think and feel and behave is very important to our money. Uh, it is uh, an investigation. We have to investigate these emotions, our thought processes, our way we behave. And if we don't process and don't investigate our relationships with money, then we don't know what the potential barriers are. We don't know what could be hindering us. We don't know what could be elevated in these areas. So we, it helps us ask the question. So we're using things in psychology, meaning interventions, all right, theories, and then we're also applying those to the mechanics of money. So the kinds of questions you ask or you discover or talk about with clients, what are some of those typical ones? Is it about history? Is it about bad experiences? What, what are some of the core things you try to unpeel when you're getting into that conversation? Mm -hmm. So it could be financial trauma, what someone went through in their household as a young person, young adult, or maybe even just in life. Uh, for instance, some people may have experienced seeing their parents argue about money. And, you know, that could be financial trauma, that could be financial enmeshment, so to speak, you know, meaning money was an issue in the home and transferred as a problem, like the child was the problem. 
and is like, oh, okay. A person grew up and says, well, I was the issue with the money. And then that person then carries that on into their adulthood. And then that relationship is not very fruitful with money. All right. And then that goes on to maybe a behavioral system that needs to be investigated. Why is this person mismanaging money? Is it surface level or is it a little deeper? Now, we're not at the couch as far as financial planners are concerned. All right. These are two different disciplines. If somebody has a clinical issue as far as financial therapy is concerned, then they need to see a clinician. Financial therapy in of itself is just using tools and interventions to have open up conversation and dialogue. All right. But if somebody has a license, you know, somebody's a licensed therapist, then they can go a little deeper. But if it's just a person, a professional, is it as a financial planner? and they have the tools, then this just opens up dialogue. Which is something you do in your practice as well. And I think you call it money mechanics, yes. right? Getting into the story of your client, understanding where they've come from, what mm -hmm. they've been through, that helps them establish that foundation and then get to the goals. Give us a little breakdown of what happens in that conversation, the client profile, I think, that you do. Right, so the profile, right, yes. What it does is at the service level, it gives the client the opportunity to without much barrier to say, okay, these are some of the things that I'm thinking. So I call it a profile and not a questionnaire because who likes going into the doctor with the clipboard? And I was like, man, what the heck are all these dang on questions? And, and then you don't fill them out. I know I don't. I get to like question four, or, you know, maybe eight. And I'm like, I'm turning the clipboard. I don't want to answer. When it asks you if you've ever been pregnant or if you're <laughs> pregnant right now, that's when that's when Dr. Cherry's like, I think I've had it. Right, right, right. It's like, I'm not answering all these stuff. Plus, plus you're going to ask me that when I get in there anyway. However, if it's structured with a good structure profile, it's like, okay, I'm glad somebody asked me these things. And it's structured in a way where I can get in quick. So it's a profile. So I have a profile that says, okay, what is your life and money perception as far as a comfort level in the future? And then what is your life and money comfort level perception now? I want to know on a scale of one to 10, I want to know if there's disconnect. If somebody says, okay, yeah, I'm feeling confident about my life and money situation now, eight, nine, 10. What about the future? Four. Okay, let's talk about that. Your confidence level, your perception. Okay, let's talk about that. Why now and not later? Tell me a little bit more about that. That opens up a lot of doors, obviously, <laughs> right? There's the uncertainty. Nobody knows what the future is going to hold. Mm. But I think for a lot of people, it's beyond that. It's the uncertainty, but also the things I think I may have wanted, my expectations for what I think mm. I may have wanted may not be realistic to me today. So does that mean I need to change my mind frame? Or does that mean I need to rethink how I get to those goals? Or is it a combination of all of those things? It's a combination. Well, it, and somebody may say, well, we haven't been saving uh, enough. We don't know where the money is going. We don't know. And I, these are real issues, by the way. I've, I've heard people tell me these, these things. They're like, A, we don't know where the money is going. B, we do allocate money to our retirement savings. Three, we don't know what that looks like. Four, we don't discuss it enough. Five, when we do discuss it, it's not detailed enough. So all these different aspects. And then you, you, we get to peel back the onion a little bit. A little role play here, I would say, okay, so when's the last time you had a discussion about that? Either if it's a single person, have you discussed it with yourself? Have you outlined what your future looks like? When's the last time you've had a discussion with yourself about it? Or a spouse, when's the last time you discussed about it? How did that, how did that conversation go? What did you talk about? And then boom, they're telling a the story. We talked about this, blah, 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 right? So it, it continues to peel back the onion. And then we're getting at the confidence level. Well, 
this is why it's a four is because we have a lifestyle that we wanted to, and it's not lifestyle, just things or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, we've determined that these are the things that we want to do. It seems like we're falling short. Can you help us with that? You know, so these are the these are the things just off those two profile questions and asking, inviting somebody in with tonality, with the willingness to learn, the invitation, the no shame, no judgment zone. If you go in there and say, oh, OK, it's a four. Why so? How come you're not more advanced? Nobody wants to hear that. But unpack that for me. When was the last time you come to so on and so forth? So you've created an environment that you've welcomed them in. And they want to share. That's why they're there for. Right. And there's the empathy part of it too, because right. your holistic financial planning, that's what we call it these days, where you're yeah. not just allocating money. Anybody can do that. I can have a robo-advisor do that. But you're also being empathetic. And you're a human being as well that's gone through your own money journey. So how much mm -hmm. of that do you bring to the table in those conversations with clients? Not to overshare with them, but right. just to say, I'm, I've been through some of these things myself. Right, right. Uh, absolutely. So I remember a time where you couldn't even share if you went through like a bankruptcy or something like that. But now you're seeing these stories all over social media. It's like, oh, I paid off 300000 in debt. Do like me. You know, I mean, you see that story over and over again. I'm like, man, we couldn't do that, you know, 10 years ago. It's like if you had a bankruptcy on your record or something like that, people didn't even want to fool with you, you know, or something like that. I share mine. It's not on my record any anymore because we don't have to report it as uh, CFPs after 10 years. But- I went through one myself and I share with students, I share with clients. I'm like, you can come back from one of those because it is emotional as well. It's also, you maybe have a social stigma. And I'm like, no, I tell, I share with students all the time and folks, it's like number one reason for bankruptcy is uncertain medical expenses. You're not some downtrodden person if you want to have to reset yourself. And then it gives people hope. It's just an example. So you're talking about sharing a story. So I can say, oh, okay. It's not too late. So you don't have to go on and on and on. Here's an example. It's like, you know, I started a little late myself. I'm in my 40s. Am I where I want to be? No, not necessarily, but I'm on pace. I started a little late, but I think I'll be okay. I reset myself. Where are you on your journey? How are you doing in relation to your story? So it opens up the front. I just shared just a little bit and it opened up to them. It's like, Okay, I can relate to that. Yeah, the vulnerability, the transparency is so important in these conversations, not just in financial therapy, not just in financial planning, pretty much in any relationship, health too, mm -hmm. for that matter. Let's talk about mistakes, but let's actually call them missteps because we don't know we're making mistakes sometimes when we're young and we just maybe step the wrong way or maybe there's something that's triggered inside of us that causes us to repeat some mistakes or do things against the way we maybe think they should be done in order to reach our financial goals. So for young people, what do you see most often and what is your research telling you about the two or three most common mistakes people, young professionals, young folks getting out of college make around money? A couple of things is overconfidence a little bit, saying that you can just do everything on your own. There's a couple of things that are helping young folks. One, there's a lot of information out there, Caleb. I mean, there's a lot of information. The very thing that, you know, as far as the phones are concerned, there's so much information. There's apps, there's platforms, there's I mean, even the large companies are putting a lot of personal finance information out there for young folks. So we have to go to trusted resources for young folks. The same thing that's helping young people could be hurting with mistrusted or misguidance too. So we want to get trusted information with young people. But I think it's doing more good than harm because uh, what I'm seeing in young folks is they actually care about their finances. 
they're actually asking questions. I'm going to high schools. We need a lot more information in high schools, a lot more. We need a lot more personal finance classes. We have a long way to go. States are trying to get their act together, but they're actually asking questions because they're probably the most informed uh, the younger generations are. So overconfidence is one. Uh, two, the gamification of investing is another. The young generation has been exposed to crypto and yield stacking. I'm, oh, I'm going to get 70%, 80%, 60%, 150%. I'm like, ah, that, that doesn't work like that. <laughs> Lightning in a bottle maybe for, for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't last long. Right. It doesn't last long. So, and then just risk capacity. They're staying home longer. They have a lot more risk to take so they can bet it all. You know, it's a, g- a gamification. So it's resetting the mindset of what the fundamentals of investing is. Okay. And number three, I would say is focusing on others. So I call it, I had this little saying called FOMO over FOMO. I need to get a t-shirt. Focus on moving on with your plan rather than fear of missing out on other things. Focus on yourself. Great advice. Now, couples, couples come, you know, that's two people coming together Mm. with different money histories, Mm. right? Different experiences around money. What do you see most often with couples in terms of missteps that they make? And I'm sure some of it is communication, but in terms of the planning, but also the emotional process around money. Right. So with couples, we can't skip over it though, which is communication and being having a process to communicate. Okay. So perspectives, Caleb, you know, it's like one person may be coming from a different perspective than the other. So what's the process of having that communication? So in a trusted space. So if there's a common goal that that household wants to get to, then that is an agreeance. So let's agree first to say, well, this is what we agree on. This is where we want to get to. That's number one. Number two is share your perspective and then I'll share mine. Then number three, let's not say that your perspective is wrong and my perspective is wrong. There's no wrong. And then Let's take a little bit out of each one and then arrive at where our goal is. All right. So that's a process of listening rather than like infighting and not getting at the goal at all. So it's dialogue, frequency of communication, how you're communicating, and then setting up a healthy environment for the dialogue. So communication, although it's just, okay, other than communication, no, it's big because there are barriers to not even having the conversation. If there's no process, yes, that's very much unhealthy. Right, and sometimes it's a secretive thing. Sometimes it's a, well, he or she handles the money. I work, I handle the other things, which can be fine as long as there's a conversation and a common shared goal and an understanding of what's happening with the money. My wife and I do do the money date uh, once a month. Where do we stand? What's coming in? What's going out? What are our goals? What are we trying to do this year? Where are we allocating money? So we do that. And it sounds a little cheesy, but you know what? Sometimes it leads to the dancing, Dr. Cherry. Right, right, right. And and make it fun, Caleb. And make it, you know, make it fun. I mean, because money doesn't have to be, uh, sometimes it is a little stressful. You know, the statistics, you know, people being worried, anxiety and uncertainty, and it has all those emotions to it. Then that's okay. We have to process those emotions. All right. But have, uh, like you said, a, a money date. It's like, hey, let's have some dinner. Let's have a, you know, what, what the heck is that dang on the, the charcuterie board? You know, <laughs> <laughs> break out the cheeses and the salami. Right, right. Let's do that. Make it uh, aspirational. It's like, hey, money doesn't have to be about what we don't want to do or what we can't do. It can be, 
hey, let's figure out how we're on track, how we're on track. How, what, are, what are we doing right? Right. You know, and, and, and celebrate the wins, right? Yeah, yeah celebrate. What are we? What right direction are we going? Right. All right. I love that. I love that. Okay. Last uh, in terms of missteps, pre-retirees. There are people getting ready for that drawdown, getting ready to stop earning that regular income, and that is an important part of people's lives. That's at a huge life stage, yeah. right there. Missteps that people commonly make when they get to that stage. This is a big one, which is permission to transition. What life are you going to next? And some folks actually have the means to go to the next life. What am I going to do next? It's what is their identity? I've seen in clients having to rediscover the next life of phase of next season of marriage. They don't remember or they need to rediscover pre-kid marriage. You know? Yeah. Uh, who are we? Who were we before? And who do we want to be going for? Right. Right. And then that entails, that information helps inform where the distribution is going to go. How much, when, all that. All right. So that's one. Another one is letting go, the distribution phase. And this is actually all through. You said pre-retirees, but folks just have a general problem sometimes with letting go of money, actually feeling worthy of spending on themselves. But yeah, that's, that's another, that's a big one in, in, in retirement because you spent time accumulating. How about not only transitioning in life, what's your next stage, what's your next journey, but also turning on the switch of letting go of some of the money. Yeah. That's not, it's not easy for people. All these things really cut deep into our emotions. This, the roots are very deep with all this stuff. Let's talk about you a little bit. Yeah. You have a PhD in financial planning. A lot of people may not be familiar that that's even possible, that that's even a degree that exists. Tell us about your process and what does that entail, becoming a PhD in financial planning? Heck, I didn't even know it was a thing after a while. I got turned on to personal finance through a mentor, uh, an undergrad. And we talked about money in the home, Caleb. You know, we talked about money in the home, so I was very fortunate in that. It was socialized in the home. And then when I got to undergrad, my mentor said, you know, you're pretty good at this budgeting thing. Uh, <laughs> so did you know that personal finance was actually a thing? And he introduced us, he introduced me to people at Texas Tech. And then I went to get my master's degree in 06 and became a junior planner, this, that, and the other. And then did some things for another decade and stuff and then circled back. I was like, hey, I want to do the PhD. So, I mean, that's my journey. I did the PhD because I wanted to do things while I'm talking to you. You know, the people that are in the industry making impact and this, that, and the other. I said, you know, I want to have a bigger platform to make bigger impact. How can I do that? And the PhD has allowed me to be a, what you call a pracademic. I can have a practice. I can be academia. I can do research. I can do speaking, this, that, and the other and be cross-generational, even global potentially, with the talent that I've been bestowed with, which I'm grateful for, and make a larger impact, not only on my family internally, but the global community. So this is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, well, you're among our most influential advisors nearly every year because you do that. You use your platform to spread that education, that literacy, and also become an inspiration for a lot of people in our field and people in your field who are coming up and thinking about what they could do. So folks, if you didn't know, you could go all the way to PhD in financial planning. There's some terrific programs out there just to get your graduate degrees. Texas Tech is one of them. You got one going. You're teaching up at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay as well. Uh, let's talk about your influences. You mentioned a, a mentor that sort of guided you this way. Was that your biggest influence? 
influence in your career so far? Yes, I've had several, and I still do. I keep packing them on too. I'm 52. You, I want more and more mentors. Yes, yes. You always keep learning. And yes, I have several mentors. I, I don't want to go down the list because I want to keep, uh, I don't want to miss anybody. There's not too many people, Caleb, that are, I don't believe this in my heart, that people are self-made. Somebody cared about you along the way. Now, people have tougher roads, no question. There's a whole bunch of stuff, institutionalism, so on and so forth. There's a whole bunch of isms. But somebody cared for you along the way. And I thoroughly appreciate the mentors that cared about me along the way. Being my, you know, my parents invested in me. I've been loved. And also in the professional world, champions, allies, believers. And I don't want to make fools out of those folks. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> make them proud. Make them proud. And, and it's so, you know, people talk about building wealth. Well, wealth, as far as I see it, is also the people you cultivate around you. Correct. Right? If you're wealthy in yes. friends, if you're wealthy in a support system with advocates, supporters, believers, and fans, there's not a lot you can't do. All right. I know you're a big vinyl guy. You're a big music guy. Uh, we were jamming out to some great 70s funk and uh, R&B last night. Mm -hmm. The three records that are in and around the record player right now in Preston Cherry's home, what's on top and what we've been listening to the last few days? Okay. So people know this about me. So songs in the key of life. Oh, uh, that's just Stevie Wonder, just one of the legends. Yes, Stevie Wonder loves in need. Uh, the world's in uh, need of love today, right? Jill Scott is one of my favorite albums, and number three would be I got to go with more than likely either a OJ's or a, or a Teddy Pendergrass album from the seventies. One of my favorites. Yeah, you uh, you're only in your mid forties, but you're an old soul when yes. it comes to the R&B. Yes. Your parents must have been spinning that as a child. All right. Preston, you know that we are a website that was built originally on our investing and finance terms. You are a deep student and learner of financial planning and investing and the entire gamut. What's your favorite investing or financial planning or advice term that you'd like to share with our listeners? Wow. I just got through teaching ratios. All right. So I would say it's not my favorite term, but I, I would say savings ratio. Savings ratio gives you a signal about what you're doing. A little bit, you know, are you paying yourself? It's a kickoff point. Yeah, I love that one. And you have to pay yourself, folks. Never forget that. Always pay yourself no matter what. Well, Dr. Preston Cherry, so good to have you on the Investopedia Express. You can find Preston all over social media, but you can also find him on the Life Money Balance podcast and, of course, on his own blogs. Dr. Cherry, so good to have you on the Express. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Teen Financials who hit us up on the gram suggesting diluted earnings per share. That's a mighty smart suggestion given the new earnings reporting season since a lot of companies use that metric instead of straight earnings per share because it is thought to be more conservative. And according to our favorite website, diluted earnings per share or diluted EPS is a measurement of a company's earnings per share if all convertible securities were converted. Dilutive securities are securities that can be converted to common stock and that dilution devalues a shareholder's existing equity stake and reduces a firm's actual earnings per share. Diluted EPS is considered a more conservative metric because because it indicates a worst case scenario in terms of earnings per share. Great suggestion, Teen Financials. We love the work you are doing to educate young people about money and investing. We're going to let J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, take us out this week. Pritzker gave the commencement speech at Northwestern University several weeks ago and delivered one of the most thoughtful and poignant remarks about kindness and intelligence that I've ever heard. We're going to link to the full speech, but here's a few edited moments that really brought it home for me. 
Many important people look at the vulnerable only as rungs on a ladder to the top. I'm here to tell you that when someone's path through this world is marked with acts of cruelty, they have failed the first test of an advanced society. They never forced their animal brain to evolve past its first instinct. They never forged new mental pathways to overcome their own instinctual fears. And so their thinking and problem solving will lack the imagination and creativity that the kindest people have in spades. Over my many years in politics and business, I have found one thing to be universally true. The kindest person in the room is often the smartest. Intelligence equals kindness. So true, no matter where you go. Special thanks to Dr. Preston Cherry for joining us this week, and special thanks to all of you for climbing back aboard the Express after our little station break. We needed that, but it's business time, and we're back on the tracks for a busy second half of the year. Check the show notes for all the reports we cited on this week's episode, wherever you ride the Express, and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. You'll find links to all of our episodes right there, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.